Well, this, um, before I start, this, this week, uh, even the last week before it, was a bit of a turmoil in the Lats house. Um, before, I'll do one of these things where I don't want anybody to gasp, so I'll tell you the end of the story, that everything is good and good news. Um, but we had, we had a bit of a scare with our son. Uh, we, if you've noticed, maybe over the last few months, he's got a thing on his head occasionally, and these like weird postules that have showed up. And um, after a few rounds of it, they thought it was a staph infection, and they, they eventually sent him off to a specialty uh, pediatric dermatologist. And so last Monday, last week Monday, um, they saw him and they kind of concluded that it was either one of two things. Uh, one was relatively harmless. The other one was a very serious um, disorder that was not curable and required chemo treatments. And so we were terrified. Um, now, you know me enough to know that I'm a very fiercely logical brain person. I kind of take things as they come um, very well. And I generally don't get super emotional, but all that kind of goes out the window when it's talking about your own kid, especially a kid so little. And so probably haven't slept for about a week and a half. Um, and then last Wednesday, we had his biopsy, and they did a sample to determine what it was. And Friday afternoon, we got the call that all was good. Um, it was this weird condition that absolutely affects nothing. Uh, we treat it with cream when it shows up on his head, and by the age of three or four, it should just go away on its own. They don't know why, but that's the reality. And so we breathe easy. But for that second, when we looked that stuff up on the internet, which your doctor always says, don't go on the internet. Who listens to that, by the way? <laughs> right? I thought it was laughable. They're like, don't Google it, like, as I'm Googling it on the speakerphone. Right. <laughs> it changed everything. All of a sudden, the whole reality flashed before me. And I'm a worst-case scenario guy when it comes to my family's well-being. So I'm picturing the days in the hospital and the potential survival rates and all those things are floating through my head. And suddenly, nothing else mattered. I forgot what tasks I had here that day. Um, so if anything didn't get done, Kathy, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but, you know, things change. Maybe you've been in a similar situation. Maybe it's a health thing. Maybe it's a job thing. Maybe it's a family thing. Whatever trauma has kind of hit or the potential of it, there, there are these things in our lives that happen that instantly kind of change the whole reality of our existence. Right? Anything we thought was important isn't important, and it turns your world upside down. Now, why do I talk about this? It has nothing to do inherently with our passage for this morning. But what it does is it puts us in a mindset when we think about those types of scenarios that I think our character in today's story likely was in that mindset. We're going to talk about John 3 today and the encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And maybe you've read this passage before a numerous amount of times, but it's helpful to have that mindset going as we look at what Nicodemus's conversation with Jesus looked like and what kind of what his deal was because we read this and he just doesn't seem to get it on the other side of the cross we look at the realities that Jesus is trying to explain and we kind of get it and I think we do this a lot with characters in scripture we look at them and go how can you not understand it makes perfect sense to us well we have the whole breadth of scripture right? Nicodemus gets a bad rap but he doesn't necessarily deserve it, at least not to the full extent. And so I want to look at the story together this morning through a fresh lens and kind of see if we can't put ourselves in the shoes of Nicodemus as we seek to understand him. I'm not sure if my remote is not going to work, but I might have to have somebody change the slides in the back as I go. So if you could hit the next one, that'd be great. Oh, it just can't. It just buzzed, so we'll see. Uh, one quick pre-observation. 
This passage is what's called a discourse. In the book of John, um, he uses these discourses. I talked about this a few weeks ago when I was dealing with the, the vine and the branches and being connected and all those kinds of things. But John likes to write these accounts where Jesus is conversing with another person. And we just get to eavesdrop. Right? And so then we learn about what Jesus is all about and how the gospel is supposed to work by hearing the conversation. And sometimes it's a positive, sometimes it's a negative conversation. Right? This is another one of those times. John is writing an account of a time that Nicodemus and Jesus spoke. Um, by no means is this the exhaustive account of this conversation. We can assume somewhat safely that Jesus and Nicodemus probably spoke through the night to a large degree. This was a long conversation, and we get kind of the, the plot line, the snippets of what went on during that conversation. Right? And so when you go, like, why did Jesus just all of a sudden change the subject? Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We don't know. Right? This, the point is, this is John writing a recount. And so don't think of this as the only things, the only words that were said between these two people. Now, here's what it says. It starts in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And then Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And here's the passage we all hopefully know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save in order that the world might be saved through him. There's a lot going on in this passage. So let's kind of take it just a step at a time. First, Nicodemus is called a Pharisee, and he's called a, a ruler, a member of essentially the Jewish council, uh, so we have this Pharisee and kind of Sanhedrin. He's a big deal. The whole point of this is to say, this is not some like small fry, you know, you would think of parish priest in Oklahoma. This is one of, you know, if this was the Catholic Church, this is one of the cardinals. This is one of the big guys, the big fish. He is the religious leader. He's one of the biggest guys in charge when it comes to the Jewish people. He's the one who knows the things. He's the one that others go to to ask questions. 
He's the one whose counsel they rely on. He's the one who gets to make the decisions. He's the one, if you've watched Hamilton, he's the one in the room when it happens. Right? He's a big deal. He is supposed to have the answers. He's the, the star pastor that everyone goes to for, for questions. Who everyone wants to listen to. And so when we look at how he's unable to understand, it's especially weird because if there's anyone who should understand, it's Nicodemus. So that's number one. Number two, Nicodemus comes when? In the middle of the night. There's two possible reasons for this. I think there's probably some truth to both of them. Number one, he comes at night because he probably wants some privacy, right? Jesus wasn't exactly a popular fellow among the religious leaders. And so to go and associate and ask questions of him, especially in a way that is respectful, right? It could be seen as him collaborating with Jesus. And all of a sudden he's lumped in with the guy who they're trying to deal with. And so he comes at night to be secretive. But there's another reason. In scripture, night generally carries a connotation, a theological weight, so to say. Maybe like of darkness. And in darkness, the idea of being in darkness means that it's the opposite of light. And so darkness is this idea of not knowing, not being in the kingdom, being far from God. Whereas in coming into the light, right, is being close to God, understanding, being a believer, being in the kingdom. And so the, the, the connotation is not just that he wants to come and sneak and see Jesus, but that he's coming in dark. It's a metaphor. It, it, it's this beautiful way that John writes to kind of let everybody know, listen, this guy is in darkness. He doesn't see the light of Christ. Second, or third, Nicodemus shows a lot of respect for Jesus. Usually we, we hear the Pharisees are these enemies. They're always somehow plotting to kill Jesus. Nicodemus seems to kind of be on the fence about this, at least, because when we see him throughout Scripture, the few times we see him, and in John we see him three times total, this and you know, at the Feast of Tabernacles and then when it comes to the burial of Jesus, every time he seems to kind of almost be somewhat on Jesus' side. He respects him. When he comes to him, he says, what? Rabbi. I've heard that you, you must come from God because no one could do the signs and wonders that you do unless they came from God. He acknowledges him as rabbi and he acknowledges that he must somehow have been sent from God. Right? That's huge for a Pharisee to be able to say those kinds of things. And so he is, he is a fan of Jesus to some degree, respectful of him, curious about him at the very least. And that's, that's noteworthy. Now, Jesus... I love this passage because he takes the flattery, right? The whole thing happens. Nicodemus comes. He says, you're a rabbi. You must be from God. Um, there's really no question in there or anything. Um, Jesus just turns around and says, um, to be part of the kingdom, you have to be born again. Imagine if someone came to you and said, you know, I've heard such great things about you. Uh, and you just turn to them and said, you must be born again. Okay. Um, hi to you too. <laughs> Maybe, you know, some pleasantries wouldn't be the worst. Thing. No, Jesus gets right to the point. He says, listen, to, to be able to inherit the kingdom, to be part of this, you have to be born again. And it stumps Nicodemus. Here's something to note, um, and I, I rarely do this, but, but the Greek is, is messing us up here a little bit. The word again in Greek um, is anathen, and it can be used in two different ways. Uh, it, it can either mean again, I will do something again and again and again. Or it can mean from above. And when we look at the Gospel of John, 
kind of holistically, and we look at the places and, and times he uses this word, it's pretty consistently used by John as from above. And so we can assume safely that in this instance, what Jesus is actually saying the first time around is not you have to be born one more time, but he's actually saying directly to Nicodemus, to, to, to enter the kingdom, you have to be born from above. Now Nicodemus messes up. He takes it the wrong way. He hears it as you must be born again, which is why he asks the silly question about, can I enter my mom's womb again and be born another time? And Jesus gives him some leeway here. Right? What does he say? He tells him one more time, how can this be? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, and then he adds this bit of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he gives him a break there. He tries to explain it again. But still, Nicodemus just doesn't get it. So what do you mean born again? How, how can this be? And Jesus finally just gets, gets over and says, listen, how is it that you, being this massive leader who has all the answers, doesn't understand something this simple? He gets even a little more in depth when we get to the second section in verses 6 through 8. Let's look at this. He explains it even more. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you have to be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from, nor where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Nicodemus replies, how can this be? And I don't know about you, but every time I read this passage, my thought is, wow, that guy is dense. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. To get Nicodemus, you got to understand how earth-shattering this conversation between him and Jesus really is. Because being a Pharisee, there's some things that are part of Nicodemus' worldview, and really that of the Jewish people, that are really important for us to understand. See, the people of God at that time, they thought that being in the kingdom, being part of God, right, ultimately, in the final sense, was tied to their Jewish heritage. And so the thing, that, the thing that you had to do was to be born a Jew and to keep the commandments. And that's what Pharisees did to the letter. Not perfectly, because no one's perfect, but man, they tried. He thought that being Jewish, being, being born a Jew and being, being a Pharisee and doing all the right things would get him entrance to the kingdom. And that's how he's grown up his whole life. When he was a young kid and there were other people in charge, they taught him that and he learned it from a young age. And by the time he's this, sin, he, this Pharisee, he actually understands the world to function in that way. It's just natural. It was his worldview. See, they had this specific system of theology that they had in place that, that functioned in this way. It was tied to your heritage. Really, the only way as a Jew that you could have not eternal life is if you just outright rejected God. He thought he had it. Being born again as a Jew meant being a Jew. And so, so Nicodemus is world just gets shattered by the statement that Jesus makes. It makes absolutely no sense. John Piper says it like this. He says, we need to stop and let ourselves feel the plight that Jesus said Nicodemus was in. He said, Nicodemus was in a room where all the door handles were too high for him to reach. And then he said, come out. 
You must come out if you want to enter the kingdom of God. I think of it this way. Imagine if like a celebrity pastor walked in the door right now in the middle of my sermon and interrupted us and said, hey, um, whatever you thought church was, no, to enter the kingdom of God, you have to walk outside and fly. I don't know about you, I can't fly. I have weird recurring dreams where I can fly, but I can't actually do it. If you're a psychologist, you can tell me what that means later. Actually, don't tell me, I'm scared to find out what that means. <laughs> right, but that would be shocking. Like if someone with authority that we actually believed came in and said, hey, to be able to be in the kingdom of God, you got to go outside and you just... You go, well, how can any human just fly on their own without an airplane? Well, you don't get it. To be able to be in the kingdom, you just, you just you have to fly through the air. How can this be? This is where Nicodemus is. How can this be? Jesus comes in and completely turns on its head any sense of how the kingdom of God and entrance into it actually is supposed to work. He completely shatters it. And by the way, when we wonder, why do these religious guys just hate him so much? This is why. Because he doesn't fit the mold. He doesn't do it the way that they thought it was going to happen. They thought he was going to come in authority and say, oh, here's my leaders. Well done. Way to hold down the fort. I've got it now. And together we ride into the sunset majestically. We'll topple the Romans on the way out, and then we'll establish the kingdom. And he didn't do it that way. And it makes no sense to the people. Just like flying outside of this building wouldn't make any sense to us. And so Nicodemus, we have to give him just a little bit of slack. But not too much. Because John doesn't let him off the hook. And neither does Jesus. Right? It doesn't end with, hey, I, I understand why you wouldn't get it. Let me sit down and explain it to you. Pain. No. He says, how are you a leader and you don't understand? Right? Here's this guy who's supposed to know everything and he doesn't get it. Now, here's where we butt up against um, what comes next in chapter 4. I'm not going to put it up on the screen or anything, but we'll, we'll look at it real briefly. John does this thing. We haven't talked about this yet. But he has, he has these things called juxtaposing discourses. He does it all the time throughout his gospel where there's a story like the Nicodemus story, and then there's a story that comes after it, sometimes immediately, sometimes a little later, that is the, the polar opposite of that story. And so in this case... What comes in chapter 4 is the encounter that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. And if you're not familiar with that passage, Jesus is going through Samaria. The, the disciples want to urge him to go around Samaria because Jews hated Samarian, Samaritans. He goes through anyway, and he encounters this woman at the well during what time? Anybody know? Noon. The most daylight part of the day. Nicodemus, middle of the night. Woman at the well, middle of the daylight. Hottest part of the day. She's getting water because she's most likely a prostitute, if not at least a whore, right? And she's getting water at the middle of the hottest part of the day because that's when no one else is there. And she doesn't want to be seen by anybody else because she's ashamed. She doesn't want to be mocked. So she waits till everybody goes away. It's beastly hot. She's suffering to get water. But she goes then because she'd rather be hot than be made fun of. And Jesus encounters her. And she has zero credit that we would think of in terms of religious anything. She's not practicing anything. She doesn't understand. She's probably illiterate. If she's heard much of scripture other than a few things through word of mouth, right? she is the least likely person. She's that person that you're just out in, in, in downtown and you see somebody and you lock your door. And you go, ah, they, they can't be part of the kingdom. Not that person. Never. 
Right? The least likely person you know in your life to ever come to know Jesus, that's who she is. She doesn't get it. She doesn't know anything. She's never had religious training. And she comes and she sits with Jesus and he has this encounter with her and she gets it. He offers her living water and she, she says, give me this living water. And then she goes into her town to all the people that would put her to shame and she starts talking about what Jesus said and did and she gets them and she brings them back. You see the opposite. The guy who's supposed to have it all together that looks like the religious guy. He doesn't understand squat. And this woman who no one would ever expect, she is the one who gets it. And John writes this beautiful, this juxtaposition of darkness and light, man and woman, religious and not religious, not understanding and understanding. It's a perfect parallel. Hi, Graham. <laughs> Love the noise of babies. <laughs> what does this mean for all of us? The gospel is a complete reordering of our lives. If you start to read studies about Christians and Christian behavior and you know, people that say they're evangelicals or, or born-again Christians or whatever, and then you start looking at other things that they believe and do and practice about the life in this world, one of the things that is scary that comes up a lot is that uh, Christians and non-Christians living in the world today, they look remarkably the same. You would think that we would have like better rates on certain things, like, like moral values or divorce rates. No, we don't. Matter of fact, the Christian divorce rate looks almost the same as the non-Christian one. We, we have to actually come to grips with the fact that when, when we go out into the world, we look remarkably the same. And then we wonder, why is no one attracted to the light of the church? Well, we don't look any different. <laughs> the gospel is supposed to completely change us. The, the, the word of this passage for us today is exactly the same. We don't actually have to extrapolate anything. It's the same exact conversation that Nicodemus has with Jesus as the one that we have with Jesus. Well, God, I'm, I'm, I'm a person that comes to church and I, I, I'm with this community and I serve these people and I've gone on mission trips and I've been an elder three times and I've been a deacon and I go to shut-ins and I give 20% of my income you know, before I make bigger donations to other things and I do all the... And Jesus would look at you and go, great, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. But I haven't missed church in four years, including COVID. I stood outside and touched the building just to be safe. <laughs> That's great. I don't care. You have to be born again. I spend constant time in prayer. I attend all the Bible studies. I, I know the Bible better than the guys that are up front preaching. Half the time when they preach, I, I, I think in my head, oh, they made a mistake there. They got that theological thing wrong. I don't really care how much you know. To enter my kingdom, you have to be born again. The woman at the well didn't know anything. The robbers on the cross didn't know anything. Today you will be with me in paradise. To enter the kingdom of God, you and I must be born again. Nothing else matters. They are significant in the way that they produce fruit. Like if we are born again, we'll naturally look and do some of these things. It's great to serve. It's great to give. It's great to be part of the community. It's great to invest. It's a little weird if you touch the building outside during COVID. 
Um, we saw you through the window, by the way. But still, great. Those things are great, but they're not going to save you. They're not going to have you be in the kingdom of God. For that, you must be born again of water and of spirit. And so here's, I guess, the hard question is, what does it mean to be born again? Do we know? We're quick to call Nicodemus stupid. (laughs) Do we actually know what it means to be born again? If it's not all these things that we do in church every day, what does it mean? If we're willing to listen, the passage actually tells us. It goes a little later. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. That's the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then we get our John 3.16 that if you've been in church for more than a year, you most likely have memorized. Fun tangent. When I first started preaching... There was a time where I thought I, I had this by heart and I quoted it and I like completely butchered it in the middle of the sermon to the point where it like what I said was actually blasphemous and then I'm listening to myself. But, but we know this. Here's the thing. Number one, no one has ever gotten to heaven except the one who came down, Jesus Christ. And the only way we go there is through him. He references the serpent's story with Moses. If you're not familiar with that, it's from Numbers 21. And it's the the people were not doing the things that God wanted them to do and were rebelling against him. And so the Lord sent these snakes, these poisonous snakes that would bite the people and would kill them. And the only way that they could live is he, he gave Moses this bronze serpent and he would put the bronze serpent up on the top of the hill. And if you looked up upon it, you would be healed. And it's a foreshadowing of Jesus on the cross. When it says in that passage, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, we're not talking about floating in heaven. We're talking about being lifted up onto that cross. That's the only way. How do you get born again? You have your faith in Jesus Christ who went to that cross, was lifted on it so that you could look upon it and in that light and believing in him and following him and committing your life to him and allowing him to shape you, you could be saved and born again. When it says water in the spirit, the water is the cleansing water that washes us clean. And that water is the blood of Jesus Christ. You must be born of water and spirit. This passage is a beautiful display of the Trinity of God at work. We see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working together. Right? The Son goes to the cross and dies for our sins. He takes all of the punishments, all of the pain, all of the anguish, and he takes it so that we don't have to, so that we can look upon him just like that serpent on the mount, and we can be saved and healed and washed clean. The Spirit comes and applies this new life to us. The spiritual rebirth that literally makes us into new people that should look different after we're new people. Do not look the same if you are in Christ. You can't look like your neighbors who don't know him. There's got to be difference there. The Spirit applies this new life to us And what does the Father do? The Father is the one who sends. I always, I guess, early in my faith life, thought of the the cross exchange this way. That, you know, the Lord sent um, Jesus down, and then that way, 
you know, when we get to heaven and we stand before God, he is angry at us, his wrath is thrown on us, and then Jesus kind of comes in and convinces him to let us into heaven. But that's not how it works. There's a, a guy named Gary Burge, he's a professor at Wheaton, and he says this, the cross is thus God's work. Jesus Christ came to earth not to change God's mind, but to express God's mind. The Father is the orchestrator. He's the one who, from the very beginning, he plans to save his son. We see that in Genesis 3. When sin hits, one of the next things we hear is the Proto-Evangelion, where he he says the, the offspring one day will come. This was always part of God's plan. God is not sitting in heaven just constantly angry and needing Jesus to go, calm down, buddy. We got to let them in. I did the whole death thing. But I'm angry and I don't want to. Well, but you, no, that's not how it works. The Lord's plan was to redeem us. The Lord loves us. The Father loves you. And so he sent his son to die for you so that you could be washed clean. And when we baptize with water, that's what we're representing, a washing clean. And that the Spirit could apply and change you and shape you and mold you in this life and the next into the person that you were meant to be, despite the sin that's in the world. That's what it means to be born again. And until that is the thing that runs your everyday life, I don't care how many Bible studies you come to. I don't care how many commentaries you read. You can go to seminary just for fun. I wouldn't recommend it, but you could. Amen, Bob? (laughs) You can do all those things. None of them are going to matter you're not born again. So my question this morning is, are you born again? Do you have your faith in him? Do you take all those things, great as they may be, and toss them aside and come to Jesus and say, none of those things matter. I'm not any better than the person next to me. I don't care how much I give or how much I volunteer. I'm going to do those things because you already love me and I don't have to earn anything else. I'm just me. And you come and you kneel at the cross of Christ and he takes you and you're reborn. That's it. That's all there is. Nothing else matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the beauty of, of how you work in perfect trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to come And to enact a plan to rescue your people who you've made, who you love, who you care for. We thank you that you care so much for us that you would send your only son so that all of us who believe in him might never perish but have eternal life. We praise you and we love you. Amen.